You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado, our guest today is a PhD student in the graduate program in religion at Boston University. He is a sociologist of religion and a health educator. His research interests focus on the social scientific study of religion, health-seeking behaviors, and faith-based health education and promotion. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler J. Fuller. Hi, Zach. Hi. Glad to be here. So wonderful to have you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Those of you, uh, you know, listening at home um, won't probably won't realize there has been a sizable gap since the last time that we have talked with a uh, Sinai and Synapse fellow. So um, if anything in the last episode sounds different than this episode, that's why it is. But it is so great to be back talking with uh, the current fellows, um, especially talking with you, Tyler. We, we had tried to connect back in the summer and summer just got away this year, didn't it? It really did. <laughs> but you're a PhD student, so I feel like you don't get a break ever, do you? No. I took uh, a comprehensive exam on religion, health, and medicine at the end of May. And then in June, I started preparing for another comprehensive exam on religion and social theory that I took about a week and a half ago. Oh, wow. And that's just been my life. <laughs> <laughs> So you're super excited to talk about religion even more then, right? I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. So in, in, uh, in, in looking at all that you are working on and talking with you a little bit and uh, just reading your CV a bit, it seems that a lot of your research centers around this intersection of religion and health or health care or how people even define health. Um, and that's that's not an intersection that I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with um, or thought that deeply about, even though now looking at a couple of the things you've worked on, I think, wow, we should really should be talking a little bit more about this. Um, could you talk a little about how religion and healthcare inform each other and from your experience and from your research? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I have really been thinking about recently is Professor Linda Barnes, who's at Boston University also, um, wrote an article that to know all the ways that you can define a person is to know all the ways that they can become ill. And I think that that's so important for thinking about the ways that religion informs um, responses to illness and both from doctors and healthcare providers and um, care seekers and their families. Um, cause religion for a lot of people does a lot to tell them what it means to be human. It's not the only thing that can tell us what it means to be human. Um, but it, it, it's a large part of that, you know, an example I think about is if you think that a, you know, human being is, is just a body, it's just a biophysical body, then your response to healthcare is usually going to be to seek out a practitioner that does biophysical care solely 
usually a biomedical doctor. But if you think that a person is a body and a spirit, well, then all of a sudden you have spiritual well-being that can be part of care and illness as well. Um, And I think that sometimes what I've seen is that you have biomedical doctors and maybe like hospital chaplains who are understanding what it means to be a person differently and trying to provide care for a person from their own kind of definitions of what it means to be a person or what the most important part of personhood is. Hmm. Um, So, but then that bleeds out into some of my other interests, like how communities seek out health and well-being um, and how you provide education about health and well-being. Hmm. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting and somewhat disturbing, uh, last year at the uh, Palmer Seminary Science and Religion Symposium that I I am the director of, uh, we had Dr. Devin Stahl from uh, Baylor out, and she was telling us that in her research they found that um, the group of people most likely to seek uh, drastic, invasive, end-of-life care, like the kind that is just will reduce your quality of life significantly in order to try to save a life, are Christians who believe in the afterlife. And that felt backwards to me, right? Because we always say that you know, well, I know where I'm going when I die, and so I'm sure I'll be fine. And um, she said that as best as they could figure, it had something to do with belief in miracles. That if you believe in miracles, then you want to give God every chance you got, <laughs> you know, um, that extra 30 seconds of life might end up being a um, a miracle, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we needed right then and there. Yeah. Every procedure, every medication, every interaction, they become an opportunity in that kind of a worldview. Yeah. And it seems like it put, uh, like, like the more a person believed in interventionary uh, miracles, it, it, like if that's a part of what their, their religion taught, the less likely they were to, to really trust the opinions of a doctor who said, all right, it's time we talk palliative. Um do you find that there's a, a, a hindrance to healthcare with our our our, our religions overall, or, or or is this something that has has helped? Do you think? That's a great question. I think in some ways it depends how you how we define healthcare. So, because hmm. in the U.S., when we think of healthcare, we're usually thinking of biomedical healthcare. Um, okay. But there's so many other medical and healing systems around the world in different times and places. And I think sometimes in the U.S. we don't examine that as thoroughly in like the public sphere. We tend to think that that biomedicine is medicine um, because it's the dominant form in the U.S. Right. Um, and I often kind of think about what are the types of questions that that thinking about biomedicine as true medicine hinders us from asking that's a great question. Um, so what other kinds of healthcare? How, how else might, might a different society define healthcare? So kind of going back to what I was saying before, like to know all the different ways that uh, all the things that define what a person is, is to think about all the ways that they can become ill. 
in different places that emphasize something more like the spirit or the soul over the body, it makes more sense to do like spiritual approaches or to do spiritual approaches first. And then if those don't work to try something else. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, uh, admit I'm stuck in that kind of Western mindset where it's, uh, you know, biomedical medicine is, is medicine and everything else is, uh, placebo, <laughs> um, which just makes me an awful pastor. I think, uh, I, I really probably shouldn't admit that, but, uh, do you think that there's a, that this is uh, a trend in, in the United States that are we moving more towards now uh, alternative forms of healing? I feel like I keep hearing a lot more about, about alternative forms and moving away from big pharmaceutical mm-hmm. um, treatment plans. Um, are we, are we correcting now or is that just me imagining something? So I think alternative forms of uh, two biomedical intervention have always you know, kind of existed in in U.S. and North American history. Um, what I think is really interesting is that why we don't remember the that those things have existed in the past, um, or or what is it about the world, the way the world is set up, the society is set up now that we have so much more access maybe sometimes to, to hearing about these different forms. And I think part of it also is that certain forms that started as very religious or metaphysical have transitioned into seeking to be understood more biomedically. Chiropractic is an example of that. The original founder of the chiropractic practice was thinking about aligning the spine to allow for the flow of divine energy within the body and how that would heal um, or promote well-being. And over the years, practitioners of chiropractic moved away from thinking about it as divine energy in the body to dealing with muscles and, and bones. So musculoskeletal approach that makes more sense within a biomedical framework. Um, and to the point now where, from my understanding, is taught in chiropractic schools is like a well this is where we came from but now we have all this scientific evidence on what it on what was really happening so some of the ways that we have sought to do alternative and complementary forms of healing and medicine have slowly inched more and more towards biomedicine they've sought to be kind of recognized as just as legitimate forms of healing as biomedicine and in times with like chiropractic, that meant moving closer to it or trying to understand itself in the language that biomedicine was using. Or at least a rapidly secularizing society mm-hmm. is using. Right? I think about the transition from meditation to mindfulness yep. of, you know, incense as a spiritual practice to a multi-level marketing scheme. Yes. Yeah, that's... It's very interesting. Um, I think about, too, the move from um, talking about religion to talking about spiritual well-being. I've done a little bit of archival research that suggests that it stems back to the White House Conference on Aging. And I'm forgetting exactly which year it was. Yeah, the first White House Conference on Aging 
they had a section a panel on religion and aging and then in the second or third iteration i'm forgetting which one because it's been a few years since i've looked at these things they switched it to spiritual well-being um because uh where they were afraid of getting told like that's not separation of church and state so if we stop thinking of it as religion and start thinking about a spirit then it then it the the assumption was then it doesn't count you know it doesn't we don't have to worry about that divide um which i think is interesting because it's from like the religious studies sociology religion perspective spirituality is often kind of seen as like a a form of thinking about like a form that religion takes yes right it's huh it's almost like the offensive part is religion it's the it's the bureaucracy it's the uh it's the names and the fancy hats Mm -hmm. of the whole deal and but it's the the kind of intuitive spirituality is something that we want to keep without the rules and fancy hats yeah some of the some of the mostly doc, medical doctors who were involved in these early things their assumption was well everyone has a spirit hmm. so therefore we can talk about spiritual well-being which again gets back to this whole idea of does everyone have a spirit in you know in um in certain events you ask some people would say nope people are just a body some people would say yes people are primarily a spirit other people would say a person is a body and a spirit equally all these different conceptions of what it means to be human Um, yeah yeah and it almost seems like when you talk about that kind of deal like ask one of those people who's very sure about having a spirit what a spirit is and uh, suddenly they can't define it anymore it just Yes. It's a thing. <laughs> I once, during my master's degree, I was taking a class on um, pastoral care and world religions. Hmm. And Wait, like studying how different religions do pastoral care? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, and it was just fascinating. I was the only non-masters in divinity degree candidate in the room. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they knew quite what to do with this little budding sociologist or religion who was interested in healthcare. <laughs> um, but I was really interested in the idea of like, can we think of health education in churches as pastoral care? Um, will will that change how pastors think about it, or will they be more willing to engage in it? Um, but during this class, we were talking about well-being and care and the concepts of physical well-being, mental well-being, social well-being, and spiritual well-being came up. And the professor asked us to think about how we would put these in concentric circles. Which one would be the smallest circle in the middle? Which one would be the biggest circle that kind of encompasses everything? And people were kind of giving, were going around the room sharing and talking about why they would think about things in certain places. And I said, well, I think that I would set mine up as a Venn diagram. And the guy, they all kind of looked at me like, what? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) and I was like, I deny the premise of your question entirely. And oh, you are destined for PhD study. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I know. Um, This is actually like days after I had gotten admitted to my PhD program view. (laughs) And I said, well, I would think of one of the circles as um, mental well-being. And, and emotional well-being and another the other circle as social well-being 
it seems to me that a lot of the things that we talk about in relation to examples of spiritual being kind of fit in the middle. If it's something like a sense of peace and calm, how is that different than mental well-being? If it's about relationships, spiritual figures within a tradition, I was like, is that not also somewhat social? You know, because it's about the relationship between two things. And the professor kind of looked at me and was like, I don't know how to deal with you trying to subvert this question like that. (laughs) Uh, They don't pay me enough. (laughs) But it kind of started this kick in me to think about like, what is spiritual well-being? I was like, because that was when I was like, okay, people are defining it. They're using this word. Are they all defining it the same way? Which is another, Mm. like, what they teach you your first semester in a PhD program is, definitions matter uh two people might use the same word and be thinking of completely different things Uh, oh my goodness right i mean you just i have thought sometimes about these um these artificial divides between christian denominations because i'm protestant and there's what ten thousand of us and i think all right is there really much of a difference between say me and the united church of christ and the presbyterian down the street maybe between the clergy who have studied this, mm-hmm. but I'll bet if you were to just look out in the, the congregation and you were to say, define God to everyone there, you would get such vastly, wildly different explanations that at the heart of our differences, it has nothing to do with what we believe about our religion. It has to do with like our belonging mm-hmm. in a club. Well, it's so interesting because you can see that there are certain trends um, or beliefs that aren't necessarily denominationally specific, but they kind of can carry across. Um, The one I'm thinking about specifically um, is the idea of Christian nationalism. Mm. There's two professors, two sociologists of religion, um, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, that have been doing a lot of work on it. And they found that this concept is people across all different types of Christian denominations can assent to Christian nationalism, the idea that the U.S. should be a Christian nation. Um, And it's not necessarily just people in one specific church, but people in one church might have completely different views on that, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. They also have some fascinating work that they put out at the start of COVID about how that concept relates to vaccine hesitancy and social distancing behavior. Like one's propensity towards Christian nationalism mm-hmm. affected their attitudes towards COVID measures. Yeah. And it was, I thought that was um, one of the most kind of, it was a really early study um, that they pushed out really, really quickly. And one that I kept sending to all my public health, my friends who work in public health now. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is really important. You know, it's not just a, religion thing or a Christianity thing or even a liberal conservative Christianity thing. Part of what they said was that they found that people who assented to Christian nationalism were more like statistically more likely to um, be vaccine hesitant. And this was before we even had a vaccine that was working, you know, and were less likely to engage in social distancing behaviors, but that being Christian as a whole didn't actually mean that you were going to, and actually some brands, some Christian communities, they were finding were more likely to do social distancing behaviors because they were using certain theologies that said, like, I should protect my neighbor, 
and things like that. Exactly. Um, Think of the most vulnerable. And so I kept sending this to people whenever somebody would say something like, oh, like people who are religious aren't going to get the vaccine or these, you know, churches aren't doing social distancing. And I was like, actually, it's a lot more complicated. (laughs) Um, Way more complicated. I have a church in my town that still hasn't started meeting. Wow. Like since March 13th of 2020, they have still not had an Mm in-person service. The whole, I, I'm working on finalizing a project right now on, I interviewed Catholics in Boston who Hmm. watched mass, Catholic mass virtually. And the, the, even within that, within one congregation, the ways that people were understanding that experience were very different. All of them were engaging in social distancing practices. Um, I think there was kind of some uh, self-selection of Mm. people who were willing to respond to an advertisement placed in the church bulletin to do interviews with this random PhD student. Um, (laughs) You know, they they had something that they wanted to talk about. Yeah, that's true. Particularly. But the things that they... Um, we're finding important were really interesting because people who were really focused on the Eucharist, um, going back, like receiving the physical Eucharist, were really excited to go back to Mass. Like they understood why they were social distancing at the time. They were looking forward to going back in person. And some of the people who thought maybe the readings or the preaching were the most important part were kind of content to watch Mass yeah. online. Some of them were like, can we keep doing this in the future? Because it takes me, you know, 45 minutes to get from the suburbs into this church that I like, you know. Yeah. And they thought it Do was Do you know if, if they're back taking the full Eucharist now? No, I don't. It's one of those things I need to follow I went up to, on. I went to my, my, uh, my nephew's first communion mm-hmm. a couple months ago, and they were doing the, the, the bread, but not the wine. Okay. Um, yeah. Sometimes Catholics do that because in the theology, you only really need one or the other. Some people will take okay. both, but when like push comes to shove, you only need one or the other. And it's this workaround that people who can't have gluten, you know, will take just the wine and theologically have participated in the whole Eucharist. Um, a lot of like where I grew up, very few people took the wine. Uh, mm-hmm. It seemed like especially when, when I was um, young in Catholic school, like almost no one would take the wine because our parents were all like, it tastes, it doesn't taste great. <laughs> Trying to uh, steer us away from it, I guess. So. It's so interesting to me how our behaviors are kind of, are, are kind of created by our, our doctrine. Yeah. But then our doctrine can then get shifted based on the needs of the moment, mm-hmm. uh, like based on our, our, what, what has to happen now. And like that, the two are constantly in dialogue with each other, modify, we're like, we're like, uh, explaining why this is okay now through some interpretation of scripture that, mm-hmm. um, that we had to come up with now because there's a need and we've been doing that forever. Right. I mean, yeah, that's the whole birth of the rabbinic movement is that there's no more temple. How do we make sacrifice? Our lives are sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Everything is a, a response to something else. It's, you know, mm. the there's any like sociology of constructivism where the society that you're in gives you these 
ways of being in the world. But then if something changes, you, or doesn't change, you put your actions back out into society and they either reinforce how things are and it continues, or if there's a necessitated change, they change it in some way. And then that changes and then acts on people in new ways. And it just kind of is this cycle mm-hmm. that keeps going. I like that. It feels alive. It's it's always changing. Always changing. Nothing's ever like quite static. Well, that's true. That's a part of what it means to be human, right? Mm-hmm. Never changing. I mean, always, always changing. changing. Never stands still. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of that. So what uh, what what got you into this this field this dialogue? How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Twenty-five minutes. Twenty-five minutes. Um, I was an undergrad, undergraduate student, and I was set on going to medical school. And I had taken a few religion classes to fulfill general education requirements, and because I liked one of the professors. And after I, my junior year of college, I started shadowing some doctors in one of the local hospitals, which I I think every pre-med student should do, because I realized. I didn't want to do what they did every day for my career. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's brilliant. You saw it and you were like, nah, it's not for me. I realized I was like, I'm more attracted to the idea of continuously learning and engaging in knowledge. And I think that I was like, if I want to do those things, I got to go to school. So mm. I uh, made a shift and my advisor, and I, so then I also started taking more religion classes to kind of um, balance out the, the biological sciences I was doing. And my advisor was like, well, there's lots of ways you can do help, work in health, you know? She was like, you should look into public health. Um, so, I, so I did. Um, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer for two and a half years in Fiji. Um, in the islands. And while I was there, I was doing community health education and community health promotion through um, water pro- water infrastructure projects, which I'm not a specialist in. <laughs> Luckily, somebody else in, in my community <laughs> was. So <laughs> I learned how to write a grant application, though. <laughs> well, that's important. Yeah. But I realized as I was doing living there and doing work, and half the time... I was always working with the church in some way. Mm. Even times when I didn't necessarily intend to start working with the church, I would be, we would be doing fundraising or something for a project and they'd be like, you know, and then it would come out, oh, well, this fundraising from the church or, oh, you know, we we organized this, um, you know, gathering these supplies or doing this work, you know, at the the women's group that's sponsored at the church or something like that. And I was thinking about just the way that the church was so woven into the community that I was working in and living in. And I found out that Emory University had a master's, a dual master's degree program in religion and public health. Oh. And uh, yeah, so I got a master's in master's of theological studies and a master's of public health. Um, concurrently. And that was what started me down this road. Wow. Well, it's really needed. Thank you. Um, I don't, I I think you 
maybe pick the right field when it comes to public health. Um, turns out we need more public health officials because they're all quitting. Well, and we need... One of the things I really loved about doing my two master's degrees together was I it made me um, read public health literature on uh, like church-based health education a little more critically where I realized that there were some points where I was reading, I was like, I, I think I need to be asking new questions about this that I don't, haven't learned how to ask yet. And then I went back to my, to the school of theology, to my religious studies professors, and they helped me shape how do I ask these types of questions that I was interested in, um, where I was able to kind of move beyond just a, what is church attendance? Does going to church more frequently associate with having this or that, you know? Um, and I got to the point where I started to feel, think, what are the narratives that people in religious communities are using? And how is that impacting how they're understanding health hmm. or offering health education? And it just, it, it felt like a, felt so needed to have yeah. that kind of being able to ask new questions. That's like, that's the beauty of, of academia right there. Yeah. Right? You go with looking for answers and all you find is better questions. Exactly. And I think that's where they get you with interdisciplinary work. They kind of like, a, <laughs> it's like the witch in Snow White where she's like, Apple, they're like, take this. <laughs> <laughs> Here is truth. They're like, gotcha. Yeah, they're like, would you like more to, questions? Would you like to take this one interdisciplinary class? And then you're like, sure, that could be a fun elective. And then you just tumble down this rabbit hole. And five years later, you're in a PhD program, not sure what way is up and what way is down. Uh, right. You find yourself on some archaeological dig site somewhere, and you're like, how did I get here? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to be a veterinarian. Exactly. I was like, you know, when I was in high school, I was supposed to end up being a, a medical doctor. And now, you know, I, I sit around interviewing people about what it was like going to to mass online and if during a pandemic. Mm. <laughs> Life takes you funny you ways. Oh, my goodness. Don't I know it? <laughs> So you mentioned the interdisciplinary work, and you had said earlier, uh, before we started talking, that um, one of the things you're really interested in is bringing religious literacy education into public health spaces and vice versa. I'm more familiar with the vice versa, uh -huh. right? the bringing um, healthcare initiatives and education into religious circles and mm -hmm. introducing them to things, you know, don't be afraid of the doctor and get yep. the vaccine and stuff like that. But the other way around of bringing religious literacy education into public health spaces, what does that look like? So it's this new kind of concept I've been playing with um, because I got the opportunity to work with Professor Stephen Prothrow at at BU, who has written a, has written a book on religious literacy, and this kind of idea that there's just certain kind of basic things about different religious traditions that we should we should know or know enough about to ask respectful questions and engage in respectful, stimulating dialogue. You know, and he teaches that with his undergraduate students, 
he has an assignment where they take a religious literacy quiz at the end of the semester where they're just kind of, you know, there's certain things that are basic questions. Like what is the um, primary text within Islam? And kids are supposed to know it's the Quran. But he also asks them certain things like George Bush referenced the Jericho Road in his inaugural speech. What is that a reference to? Why is that? Why is it important that the president of the United States made a reference, made a biblical reference, um, in a national, in his inaugural speech? Um, to think about the ways that these images and narratives from different traditions seep into the public, um, but also like if you don't know what he's referencing, you might interpret that part of his speech very differently. Yeah. Um, and I love these. That's I, the Good Samaritan, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and I saw Professor Prothero do this with his students, and it made me think about that that was kind of some of these ideas that I was just trying to experience, get a grasp on in my master's program with these interdisciplinary work. Um, and I was like, I think what I would really like to do someday is go back to the public health spaces and and do some of this kind of work and think about like, what is the what are some of the basic things that somebody in public health needs to know about religion in order to engage in some of these questions and think about some of these things? And I think it very you know that that answer to that question varies on what type of work they do. <laughs> mm. You know, if they are an epidemiologist who is interested in gathering data about how religion or religious denomination affects, you know, um, mortality rates, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and maybe that's kind of more of a, what, let's think about what's the definition of religion or the fact that religious studies scholars don't agree on a definition of religion. Um, but on the other hand, if it's somebody who is getting an MPH from a department of global health, um, who wants to work in say nonprofit sector or the NGO sector, um, internationally, then I think, you know, there is something that's important for them to know about different, have a base knowledge of the different religious traditions in the community and the country that they're going to work in, you know, Um, and a little bit of knowledge about what is pluralism? Mm. Um, How does that affect things? Sometimes it's easy to go into a new space and kind of be like, well, let's talk about the dominant, let's talk to the dominant tradition or um something like that but i think it's important to think about this who is where what are the different traditions what is the base kind of things that i need to know about this tradition so that i can ask the appropriate questions yeah that's a great point it, you can no longer just assume you walk into a, a, a hospital room and the person is some kind of christian in yeah. the united states you probably should not have assumed that in the past either but you know, it's more important now than ever before. And I guess your really interesting point about how you even define a religion, mm-hmm. because when you when you go to those checkboxes of, you know, what's your religious affiliation, I always see Buddhism on there. And that's not a religion, according to the Buddhist that I know. And yet it kind of checks a lot of the boxes of religion, even without the deity. Do you do you have a good working definition of religion <laughs> or religion scholar? I do not. Um, And actually, one of the things that I think is really important is, so 
one of the things is um, the problem with defining religion is either that you're going to leave out something that most people would kind of conventionally consider to be a religious tradition, or you're going to make it so broad that you can include tons of things that we wouldn't normally. Um, like there are set example of this is there is a really kind of fun, playful article um, about what if we think about baseball as religion mm. and kind of goes through it. You're in Boston. It, so. I am in Boston. So, you know, there is that. <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's the problem is like, sometimes you get religious definitions that are so broad that they don't become useful. And I think one of the things that I've learned over my graduate school career is that oftentimes it's important to select the definition or the theory that helps you answer the question at hand. Hmm. Um, and this is something that public health people talk about too in, in health education. They, there's many different theories of health education and health behavior. And when I was taking my first theory seminar on that, the professor told us, you know, some of these are tend to work better for certain things than other things. Um, there's some that work really well for um, one-time interventions, getting somebody to get, say, a COVID-19 booster shot or a flu shot. And then there's other ones that work better for thinking about kind of daily activities. Like, how do you increase somebody's fruit and vegetable in intake or their activity on a daily or weekly basis? You would use, health educators would know instinctively that you should use different theories or approaches for those because there's just ones that tend to work better. And I think that the same thing kind of applies to religious studies. It, 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 the question depends on the, what question you want to ask. If you want to ask something about, say, purity rituals and how maybe menstrual rituals affect women's health, well, you probably want to go with um, Mary Douglas because she has her theory of religion or her work on religion thinks about purity and purity rituals. If you want to think some about something more institutional, like how does the Catholic Church make rules about your doctrine about um, contraception, um, then you might want to use Durkheim, who thought a lot about institutions. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really important for anyone thinking about religion and public health to think about is if there's no perfect theory of religion, just like there's no perfect theory of health behavior, then the task of the researcher become, or the practitioner, maybe not even always the researcher, sometimes just the person who, you know, a public health educator is their job, is picking the, the tools that are the most helpful um, at the moment. So, yeah, that's something I'm really interested in. And I think that's that's part of why I'm in a religious studies program for my PhD. <laughs> mm. is to, I thought it was really important to kind of get these deeper understandings of what is religion? How does it work? What are the different ways to think about it? Do you see examples, uh, like good, helpful examples of uh doctors working along doctors and administrators working alongside their like uh, spiritual care departments they're bringing in their chaplains to to help educate the the healthcare professionals as well i know there are um admittedly i'm not as current on hospital chaplaincy but 
a, a similar example that I think is really important and interesting is um, the last really big Ebola outbreak that we had. Um, you had all these health educators that went in and were like, here's how to how you should be preparing corpses after somebody has died from Ebola or died, you know, or you don't know what their death cause was because you don't know if it could be Ebola or not. And people were not very receptive to that. Hmm. But they started working with some of the local religious leaders and faith leaders who, one, explained some of the reasons that they do burials the way that they do them, but also helped in framing communication messages for the public, as well as spreading them, not just the framing, but also like the putting them out into the community. And that worked much more effectively. Um, and so I think that, especially some around these very sensitive and important religious topics, especially around something like life and death, that kind of partnership in thinking about how do we mitigate the risk of disease transmission while also understanding what is going on religiously here and what religious commitments need to be made, you know? Because somebody might say, it's more important for me to um, engage in this religious practice than it is for me to worry about Ebola at the moment. So it's that, how do you, how do, how do people negotiate that? And I think it's, that's the important partnership between biomedical doctors and then religious leaders. Yeah, I've found personally, there's a large gap between theory and practice when it comes to religious settings. There's just a lot of things that I thought before I became a pastor and then having done it for years, I realized like, wow, this theory is practically useless because I need to be looking at this from a totally different perspective from somebody who is currently suffering, somebody mm -hmm. who's currently in pain, who's not thinking rationally. You know, they're not thinking about public health right now. They're thinking, they're, they're feeling so deeply mm -hmm. the loss of this loved one and their eternal lives. And there's all these other things going on there that, um, you know, maybe there's more of, a, of an art than a science to, to some of the, the people relations that go on. It's kind of that thing of like, we, we talk a lot about how biomedical doctors need bedside manner. Sometimes I think public health practitioners also need a certain level of bedside manner. You know who's who's really great at this is uh, somebody who was a fellow last year, um, the Sinai and Synapses, mm -hmm. uh, Casey Bienname. She She is a spiritual care director at Lincoln All Hospital. Um, she started a program similar with connecting the the doctors and the chaplains together. I believe I'm my, the details are a little fuzzy in my mind. It was episode seventy one. If anyone wants to listen, and then send me a letter saying that's not at all what it was about. But if memory serves me, we talked a lot about the practicality of of providing the best healthcare on the ground to people. Mm -hmm who are currently suffering and perhaps not thinking what we might call rationally in the moment. So Tyler, at the end of our time together, I like to ask all of the fellows um, a super easy question okay. um, that shouldn't you shouldn't have to think at all about. That being, if there was one thing that you could tell the entire world, if there was one thing that you wish every single person knew what would it be? 
I shouldn't have to think about this one, huh? <laughs> like, you know, in the Matrix where Neo's just like, whoa, I know Kung Fu. Because they, like, put it into his brain. Okay. Like, that kind of deal. You, you can just zap one thing into everyone's brain in the world. What, what's it going to be? Hmm. I'm going to go with how to swim. How to swim. Okay. You need to unpack that one a little bit for me. I Look, you asked me for something off the top of my head. Um, and I was, I'm into it. This is the best answer so far. Go ahead. I was a lifeguard for nine years and I taught swimming lessons for that whole time. And so swimming is, uh, something I think it's as much as it's fun. It's also an important safety skill, you know? So that's something I've always thought is important for, to learn. We could probably save a lot of lives if everyone just instinctively knew how to swim. That is an excellent public health answer. (laughs) That, that I think that might be one of my favorite answers so far. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Tyler, for your uh, your enthusiasm, your interest, uh, the work that you're studying and doing. Um, so much blessings on you and this next period of, uh, of your PhD and the ridiculous amounts of work that it will take. But it'll be it'll be great. It'll be worth it. This is such necessary work that you're doing. Um, So thank you for doing it. And thank you for spending the last 45 minutes with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 